Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in community organising. We work with non-profit and community-based organisations, trade unions, uh, progressive businesses and social democratic parties across the globe to develop campaign strategies, train engagement staff in leadership and power building and help you execute your campaign with data-driven tactics and Actions. And in 2022, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories, inspire others, take action and organise communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also proudly brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Are you an enthusiastic, client-focused lawyer? Morris Blackburn Lawyers are hiring a lawyer or associate or a senior associate with experience in their personal injuries team up in Townsville. They offer a safe, supportive and collaborative environment backed by inclusive leaders and progressive policies and you'll manage your own file load with heaps of support. Are you ready to join them on a journey to extend access to justice to more Australians? I hope you are and if you are, you should apply by going to morrisblackburn.com dot au forward slash careers morris blackburn experience you can count on hello and welcome to another episode of socially democratic your weekly center-left politics and organizing podcast out every friday that dives into the progressive campaign issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad and on today's episode we are going to speak to Andrea Carson, who's an associate professor in the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy at La Trobe University, my old alma mater. And uh, Andrea has been on the show previously, mostly to talk about media and the role that media plays in politics and political campaigns from an academic uh, standpoint. Um, We had her on after the 2019 campaign to do a bit of a debrief and I wanted to get her back on again today. I know the election was a while ago, but it took us a while to... Uh, align our diaries for her, to, for her to come on today's show, but she got here eventually. So I'm wrapped to have her on the show today to have a bit of a yak about um, the campaign and media uh, and whatnot. So I hope you enjoyed today's show. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. And if you like the show, be sure to give us five stars on Apple Podcast and on Spotify. And when you're done listening to today's episode, leave us a review. And for all the updates, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Okay. Let's get to today's episode. We are taping this one on a Thursday afternoon in uh, on the lands of the Wurundjeri people uh, on a cold Thursday afternoon in Melbourne. My God, this winter seems to keep on going. Um, but uh, joining me on the line, and I've been meaning to get this person on for a while, and she's a very busy person, very important. So, so we're lucky to have her. Um, she's the Associate Professor in the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy at my alma mater, La Trobe University. Andrea Carson, welcome back to Socially Democratic. Great to be here. Thank you for having me, Stephen. Um, now, the first time you were on the show was in the embryonic days of Socially Democratic. I think it was like maybe our sixth or seventh episode and the 2019 federal election was done and dusted, Labor lost, we're all looking our wounds on our side of politics and you came on and we had a bit of a chat about media and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I know you've been on since then but uh, I wanted to get you back on again after this election, not just to brag about how Labor's in government but also just to get your uh your takes, your insights from the campaign, 
from media and the role that it played in the campaign as a communication uh, tool between the politicians and the electorate. And then maybe a bit of a broader conversation about politics in general and how you see it going. Always keen for your insights. Um, It's been a while now since, I mean, it's August now, can you believe it? It's been a while since the election, so we've had a bit more time to, you know, the dust has settled and start to do a bit more sort of serious reflection. I want to get your insights into the campaign itself. Um, What were your kind of key takeaways from the campaign and, and, and the results? Yeah, I think the first thing is there was a real nervousness about whether the polling was going to be accurate this time or not. As you alluded to before with the defeat of Labor last time, where the polls um, systemically overestimated the Labor vote. And part of that was because their sample um, didn't have enough Conservative voters in it. And the results weren't too badly aligned with what the polls were telling us. So um, there was that element about whether we trust the polls or not, but also early voting. More than half of the electorate went, or Australians went to the polls. Uh, to cast their vote early this time. And that's got real implications for the way campaigns run because it means effectively that the campaign gets truncated. It stops the moment someone's voted for that particular person because they don't need to hear the messages anymore. And in Australia, election campaigns are particularly important. And part of that is because unlike Europe and some other countries where they have really detailed policy manifestos, We don't have that. The policy documents are usually not all that detailed and some of them don't come out until the campaign's underway. So the public are reliant on the media to be able to um, make that informed choice based on um, policy information. And because it was so truncated, not all of that information came out. I think it was a stroke of genius with the ALP deciding to do their launch pretty early So they did capture it before early voting opened and they also did their launch in Western Australia, which was a really smart move because normally, as you would know, Stephen, voters at the state level and at the federal level often think differently about how they're going to vote. But I think with the backdrop or maybe even in the foreground of COVID, that didn't happen so much this time. I think there was a conflation between state politics and federal politics. And, of course, WA did really well with the state election. Um, West Australians were very happy with how Mark McGowan handled COVID. And having the ALP launch there, I think, really set Labor up well to get those seats that it picked up uh, in WA, which wouldn't have been thought of as possible only a few years ago. There's a bunch of things there that we can unpack. Um, Maybe let's go backwards um, and start with Western Australia. Uh, We had a former uh, WA Labor Assistant Secretary, Linda O'Shalom, on the podcast um, in our post-election series of uh, episodes doing an analysis of WA. Uh, And you're right. I mean, I I know that there are times when campaigns will deliberately – you can kind of work out where they're going to target their part of their resources anyway by where they launch their campaign – and where, where is sort of ground zero. It, and I'm not saying that uh, just by having a launch in WA that then locked in all these seats or locked in all these votes, but it certainly was a great start and a good indicator to that particular part of the electorate that we're, you know, we're invest, investing in, in this part of the country and we're taking your opinions and your votes serious. Um, what did you, uh, did you get a sense of, 
the type of campaign that was run by Labor in Western Australia and the difference to the rest of the national campaign? Did you did you do you have any sort of insight into that? We we spoke about that um, with Lender on the show that it was very patriotic and parochially WA. But did you get, did you get a sense of that? Probably nowhere near um, what your previous guests have had, having the distance of only getting it through the media. But I think the goodwill that West Australians have for their Premier um, and having Mark McGowan standing side by side with Anthony Albanese was a real strength um, for the start of that campaign, which got off to a pretty bumpy start for Labor with the gotcha moments when Anthony Albanese wasn't able to, uh, at a moment's notice, um, recall what the unemployment rate was, which led to a few days of some pretty terrible headlines for Labor and for Anthony Albanese and, well, fairly vitriolic coverage actually coming from the east coast of the country with the daily tabloids and I I guess, you know, I might as well call it out, the News Corp publications that um, do do negative coverage of Labor and have done so for as long as I've been tracking it, much more disproportionately than they do for the coalition. So uh, having that more positive vibe coming out of WA um, and the goodwill attached to Mark McGowan, I think, and and also displaying the depth of um, strength across the Labor front bench was um, a real positive to try and turn around that rocky start. And then the second point you said at the start of your remarks, which was... Uh more than 50% of voters are voting on before election day. It's almost as if we need to stop calling it election day and call it election fortnight. I mean, it's even, it's longer than a fortnight. It's three, three, three weeks. It's almost like an election month. We need to start referring to it as uh, election month. Um, what, uh, what have you picked up from, uh, if you, like if you make comparisons of previous election campaigns, what are you noticing in terms of strategic changes, and I think we might have spoke about this last time we were on, when we did this in 2019, we started to talk about the strategies that were changing from the political parties because of the fact there were so many people voting uh, earlier. Um, do you think that there are there's what what changes are you seeing from the campaigns in terms of how they're d- dealing with this as a strategy? But where else do you reckon they need to go to um, to respond to the fact that so many people are are voting earlier? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think last time I said this, and I still hold it to be true, that Australia's probably at least one term, perhaps two, behind the trends in the United States. And in 2019, for some reason, just tracking through the digital campaign and use of social media, uh, we found that Labor sort of dropped the ball compared to 2016. It didn't get the reach that Scott Morrison got in 2019, One of the things that um, the public love to do is share videos, share memes, uh, and they like um, campaigning that has a narrative, that's storytelling. And Scott Morrison did that particularly well in 2019, which is interesting because he had a much lower um, support base in terms of followers than what Bill Shorten did, and yet from the data that we've looked at on Facebook in particular, he really outperformed in terms of reach of voters. 
This time, I think Labor learnt its lessons. We see that Anthony Albanese and his team were putting out a lot more videos. We're using different platforms which segments off voters. So younger people tend to go Instagram and TikTok and older voters uh, on Facebook. And there were messages that were crafted right across those platforms. And Anthony Albanese from uh, the analysis we've done so far in Labor was really um, outperforming the Liberal Party and the Coalition in terms of its reach this time. But also the paid space was really interesting. Uh, Facebook had a digital ad repository and following that pretty closely, you could see where resources were being put and Labor, these ads don't cost all that much, 150 to 200 bucks, and you can really target them to geographical areas. Labor really outspent the Coalition on Facebook um, targeting those messages to key seats and key voters, and I think that was pretty smart. We also see that happening with the independent candidates, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit more. They, of course, have the advantage of only reaching out and communicating within their electorate, um, about 110,000 voters, and they use social media, the paid space and the free space, really wisely. And you can see uh, in some of those really contested teal seats that are now known as teal seats, the panic that took over with Josh Frydenberg and Tim Wilson in the last week, they did this massive ad spend on Facebook trying to catch up and to reach um, reach out to voters that they'd probably been taking for granted. But, of course, with the combination of early voting, they left it too late and that ad spend came way too late to reach those voters. Does your data or research show um, a increase in early dollar spend on that digital advertising? Like, say, election was on the 22nd of May. So if you go back, um, I mean, normally, historically, we think of a campaign as being a 33-day campaign, but really the campaign kind of starts well before that. Is there evidence that either any of the major political parties or even the smaller ones were spending money, say, two months out? Yeah, there's evidence of that which you'd expect because we do have kind of permanent campaigning. But I was a little surprised to see that the mandated campaign period of 33 days, and I think this one was 42 days by the time the writs were issued, that's when spending really took off. The candidates and parties were still really waiting for that official period to kick in. Of course, the exception's Clive Palmer, who was doing a massive ad spend, you know, six months, 12 months out which is really interesting because uh, reportedly he spent over $100 million and the bang for the buck he got out of that, in fact, I'd be keen to know what you think his long-term strategy might be, but to pick up a Senate seat in Victoria with such a big ad spend um, shows that his messaging wasn't very targeted uh, and and just wasn't hitting um, the right notes with the, with the voters. Yeah, it's a good question. I've really not spent a lot, to be honest with you, I've not given a lot of my brain space to Clive Palmer. Um, I think a lot of people get really obsessed with the fringes of politics and I kind of tend to not do that. So, you know, your question, I'm really going to go off on the fly. Look, I did see a lot of his ads, you know, billboards, you know, bottom of the fold, newspaper, plus all the stuff on social media. I, I, I don't know. I felt that a lot of the advertising was in um, was patronising to voters. I think that it suggested that voters were stupid enough to believe some of the stuff that he was posting up. Like voters aren't that disengaged. 
that they'll believe, you know, what was his policy? There was something about taxation. There was a weird policy on tax. Oh, the 3% on interest rates or? Yeah, or, and there was something he was going to abolish something. And I just, it, yeah, it was kind of like appealing to the hip pocket of people in sort of outer suburban Melbourne. And the ad I saw was on the way, it was on the, like on the Western Ring Road, sort of out near sort of broad meadows and stuff. And that, I think they probably thought, oh, this is very smart. This will do well. Um, I, I think voters aren't that stupid. I think they can see through that that's just, that's some bullshit policy right there. I think one of the things that's interesting, though, is he did get over 4% of the vote. And when you combine that with the One Nation vote, you've got a sizable number of voters there that perhaps is where the Liberal Party under Dutton will be looking to pick up votes. And I think that pushes the Liberal Party further off to the right to gather votes from that area. I also think it's got interesting implications for what happens at the state level, whether we see um, Palmer fielding candidates uh, in the upcoming Victorian election. And I think the success of the independent candidates, uh, we might also see them looking towards state government um, to the state election in November. Well, let's go down that rabbit warren, shall we? Um, I'm happy to come back. We'll come back to the Fed stuff in a moment, but let's talk about Teals. Um, what were your impressions going into the campaign about the success rate you thought that the Teals would have and uh, your reflections on uh, where they go and how they behave and conduct themselves in this new parliament? So, as you know, Stephen, we did have a podcast running at La Trobe called Below the Line where we got Kathy McGowan on during the campaign and we talked about the Teals. This was like week three and she made a very accurate prediction that probably seven or eight would get up uh, of Teals and Independence. And the success, I think, was well above what most people were anticipating. Um, however, I think it's no coincidence that the majority of the independent candidates are well-resourced women, that women were largely neglected in the campaign. Uh, we see that in the media coverage where we've tracked through how newspapers were covering the election and there's some really important omissions in front-page coverage. Gender equality is one. There wasn't much time devoted to climate change and there was very little... There was some stuff on political integrity, but uh, that was mainly coming from the nine stable of media. These were the three planks that formed the policies of the Teal candidates in particular, and I think they really hit the nail on the head that these are issues people care about. Um, so, and given the backdrop of the allegations of gender abuse in the federal parliament and um, the following that Brittany Higgins now has, I think there was a real movement for change there and for really readdressing the um, gender gap that has been uh, a long-standing problem in Australian politics. So seeing the teals get up, I wasn't all that surprised. And, of course, I had the early insights from Kathy McGowan, who, as you know, is a fantastic field campaigner herself, one of your areas of expertise and of passion, and taught those um, independent and teal candidates how to do that field campaigning and really bring communities with them, both in terms of fundraising, of getting the message out and getting volunteers on board. Yeah, it was an impressive um, startup operation really from from scratch. I think that's the thing I found most remarkable about, r- remarkable about it was uh, a lot of these candidates came into the field quite late in the cycle. Um, I mean, Zoe Daniels, 
uh, sorry, Zoe Daniel is a good example of that. I don't think that she put her hand up until sort of going into the summer. Um, so that was less than a six-month campaign that she was involved in uh, and the amount of volunteers that they could recruit and then organise and mobilise to go out and have conversations and, and not have the resources of all the major political parties. Their lists wouldn't have been accurate. They would have basically had to have just knocked every door and just tried to slowly build up a bit of a um, mosaic of who they wanted to talk to. So it was a remarkable campaign, certainly in Goldstone anyway. Well, some of the clever things they did, uh, they had spreadsheets with knocking on doors and getting data about who they were talking to. Um, so it's some pretty rudimentary tools there. But they would tie bikes um, to uh, lamp posts with advertising on them and move the bikes around the electorate so that they had this visibility. They had the free T-shirts that they gave out to all volunteers who happily wore them, which created, again, more visibility and this kind of teal wave or presence among the electorate. Um, and I think they had a lot of fun, which made people want to be engaged. They felt like they were involved in something that was new and fresh and potentially was going to change Australian politics. And now that we see the configuration of the federal government, we've gone from 57th in the world for female representation in the lower house um, back up to 36th. So that's an improvement. There's a lot more Indigenous representation than we've seen before. Um, And we've got uh, different ethnicities represented in the parliament. So we are seeing, I'm not saying that um, there's not more work to be done, but we're seeing a parliament that's a little more reflective of voters. And part of that is because of um, getting uh, some independence into the parliament. And, you know, to fly the Labor flag flag as well, certainly Labor has um, lifted its game across the country in finding uh, uh, a more diverse range of candidates uh, and Western Australia has done a great job of that in particular, um, which is great to see. But also, even in my home state of Victoria, we've got um, we've got a lot more diversity in the parliament um, from uh, from the Labor Party here. I wanted to ask you about uh, this, I guess, cratering out of the Liberal base. You're talking about uh, Dutton having to reach out to potentially reach out to One Nation and Palmer type voters. Meanwhile, at the same time, they've just lost their traditional Liberal heartland or a number of those seats, um, which now we seem to identify them as being socially progressive and maybe economically conservative or just wealthy. Um, this is an interesting conundrum for the Liberal Party at this moment in time, where they where they go. It almost has a sort of a kind of 1960s Barry Goldwater vibe about, you know, the Republican Party uh, and how they we saw this sort of flip in US politics with the Democrats uh, and the Republicans. Um, and I think this will impact on the Labor Party as well, but we'll get to that in a moment. Where do you see the Liberal Party going in terms of its um, ideology and its core constituency that it seeks to 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 basically build the foundation of its of its of its party. Yeah, I think the tracking further to the right, uh, at least at the moment, with Dutton in charge, and as you say, many of the moderates um, have been hollowed out now and um, cast aside, being replaced by independents and by teals. But we need to keep in mind this trend's been going on for a little while for the Liberals. It's it's 
become, it's been illuminated at the 2022 election. But if you think of past independents who are still in the parliament, such as um, Rebecca Sharkey, Helen Haynes at Indi, uh, Andrew Wilkie, they have taken what were conservative seats and held on to them. And that should really send a sense of fear into the Liberal Party because the Teals, depending, of course, on how they perform over the next three years, might have a good chance of retaining those seats if voters are happy with them, as has been the past with these past independents. And I think there's some lessons learned. The seats that were gone, such as um, looking at Wemp- uh, Wentworth and uh, also... Um, Josh Frydenberg's seat, these were held by former Prime Ministers of the Liberal Party, Um, not to mention Tony Abbott's seat. So these are sort of the jewels in the crown for the Liberal Party and they don't look like they're going to return to that party anytime soon. So in answer to your bigger question about where the Liberal Party's heading, apart from ideologically it's shifting to the right, And let's keep in mind that we kind of have a three-horse race going on now. A third of Australians did not vote for the major parties. 32% was the primary vote share thereabouts for Labor, 35% for uh, the coalition, uh, which is a coalition, by the way, much less if you separate out the parties. And then the other third are going to other candidates. So if the Liberal Party keeps tracking down this path... um, it could find itself to be quite a niche party and certainly won't be dealing itself in to bipartisanship with the Labor Party if it does move further to the right. So I think it needs to do a profound rethinking if it wants to be a mainstream party about how it positions itself. And, of course, that's dependent on who is still left um, in the elected component of the party. Uh, And most of those are fairly conservative at this point. And it doesn't look like they've even learnt their lessons. I mean, rule number one in politics after you lose is you just spend at least six months, at least six months running around the country and doing a mea copa and saying the voters were right and we got it wrong and we're listening. You know, the, the old Labor is listening to it that, you know, we've done after every time we've lost, a, uh, lost government. And they're not even doing that. They're still blaming the voters. And There's been a little bit of lip service around gender, but not what you would expect Um Susan Lees has, you know, raised the possibility that maybe it's time for quotas, but then when pushed around on this, isn't prepared to cross that line. And given the legacy that the Liberal Party has, uh, it was once, um, its peak time for female representation was the second term of John Howard. Voluntary targets have not worked and they're not going to work. And Labor's example is a really good one here, that when it introduced gender quotas in 1994, it's taken over 20 years to get up to almost having parity in the lower house. So unless you have that sort of revolutionary change, you're not going to see um, a party that has gender parity. And increasingly since 2013, uh, women vote progressively. Given that women are 51% of the population, there's a starting point and a lesson for the Liberal Party that if it wants to be a mainstream political party, it's going to have to find a way to get women on board uh, and women have voted for the Teals more so than what they have for any Liberal um, candidates within their it, within those electorates. And he's hoping they don't learn that lesson for a long, long time. Um, 
the Teals, you mentioned before about the primary vote of uh, the, the most recent federal election, 30, 30, sort of third, a third, a third, one to Labor, one to the Tories and one to um, others. Do you think that third will hold up over the next, you know, couple of electoral cycles going forward for in terms of primary votes for others, for the non-Labor Liberal campaigns? Um, I mean, I'm always a bit cautious about gazing into the crystal ball, but it does follow the longer-term trend. This has been a trend that's been going on for at least the last decade that voters are moving away from the two major parties and towards minor parties and micro-parties. Whether the Teals and the Independents are able to hold on to these um, to their seats, I think, will depend on how they perform. In and, and in one way, because it's a majority government for the Labor Party, the Teals may not have a, a, a lot of policies they can be particularly instrumental on. So I think it will depend on how clever they are in really picking their battles and working together rather than pulling apart. Um, but I think that longer-term trend of voters moving away from the major parties isn't going to reverse anytime soon. Can I throw something back at you? Yeah, please. I, I think that if the Albanese Labor government perform as well as uh, uh, as they should, so I'm thinking as well as the Andrews Labor government after winning in 2014 or as well as the... Uh, the Palaszczuk government after winning in 20, whenever they um, first got back into power, uh, that I think voters will reward good, stable, centrist government. And I think that that would then eat into partly the Liberal primary, but as well as the primaries of the independents. I think that you're right. Maybe overall there is a trend that is moving away from the two major parties and that's something to be worried about. Uh, but I think that if – I think in this election there was a lot of people that wanted to vote for Labor – but couldn't bring themselves to give them the primary vote. Uh, certainly not going to vote for uh, the Tories. That was quite clear. I mean, the, you know, the Tory primary vote absolutely collapsed in this election. But they went elsewhere before they brought their preference back to Labor. I think that if they're, if if Albanese and the team can deliver a good government over the next three years, uh, I know it's a big if, um, but if they do, then I think that they'll get rewarded by voters. And I'm talking about the voters, suburban voters, out of suburban voters, folks in sort of in terms of Melbourne, like out of recent suburbs. Like I think Deakin falls to Labor. I think Menzies falls to Labor. I think Latrobe falls to Labor. I think, you know, maybe Caldwell falls to Labor. There's a bunch of seats that will just, that Labor will just clean up, maybe even sort of further in. I would even argue that if we've got the resources, you start to run against some of those teals as well and say, well, what the hell have you done in the last three years? If you want to actually get some change, you should vote for Labor. MP because that's the people who are actually in government making change. So quite a few points there. I think um, this trend of moving away from the major parties is also a global trend. It's not just something that's happening in Australia um, and that's because there is dissatisfaction with organised political parties more generally. I think I've got some sympathy for your argument here. I think what we've seen so far with Anthony Albanese is a very consensual style of politics that has been missing for some time in the Australian landscape. It's been a fairly um, uh, hawkish type of politics that has had a lot of style over substance and now I think we're returning to a time where more voices, multiplicity of voices are involved in policy making and I think the public like that. 
it may not be as polished and I think the public liked that too and in some ways the awkwardness that we saw during the campaign of Anthony Albanese may have in some ways rewarded him because the flip side to that is an authenticity that's been missing um, for a while as the voters have got to understand what who Scott Morrison is and what he represented. Um, the other point about the Teals is interesting about whether Labor will go after that vote because some early results coming out show that 20% of coalition supporters voted for the Teals. It's coming out of ANU. A lot of the voters were Labor voters, but it's hard to read into this too much because, of course, Labor ran dead in some of those seats. So where a Labor voter is going to go if there's not a candidate that's fielded or not one that's particularly well-known up against someone like Zoe Daniel, who, of course, had a really strong media profile, um, being a foreign correspondent and following around campaigns, um, so they parked their vote there instead. So it will be interesting to see whether Teal's become friend or foe for the Labor Party over the course of the next three years. I mean, I, I, in that prediction, I know full well, well, not full, I, I would make a large wager that we won't run candidates against the Teal's. We just won't do that. They're just The Labor Party will not do that. Um, there would, it would, uh, I don't know what it would take for Paul Erickson and, and the team in Canberra to say, yeah, okay, let's put resources into trying to pinch seats off of off of the Teals. I think they're quite happy for them, for the Teals to be spending their resources in forcing the, the Tories to be trying to win back seats that they lost and that makes perfect, um, you know, strategic sense. Um, but, uh, you know, as I've said before on the show, I think every seat's flippable and you can't win them unless you're in there campaigning. And you're right, Labor did run dead in all those, in all those races. Um, but God bless the Labor candidates who put their hand up and were on the ballot paper anyway. Um, let's uh, let's talk. Do we? I, w- I want to talk about the media. But is there anything else you want to say about the election campaign just broadly before we jump onto uh, the the media's role in the most recent campaign? No, I think we've we've covered off on most of it. The media. Allow me to get on my high horse. <laughs> what, what? Actually, no, I won't. Let's do this in terms of pluses and deltas. Starting with deltas, like you know. What did you see from the performance of mainstream media in terms of their coverage of this election uh, in 2022? What was the things that you looked at and went, I probably could have done that a bit better? And then we can move on to things you think they did well. Well, I think you may not like this answer, but I think I saw more of the same. Uh, In tracking the front pages of newspapers, there was a very narrow band of topics that were covered and most of them favoured coalition policies. So, for example, and this is something that I've been doing um, since the campaign, uh, most the most common topics were around the economy, cost of living, um, and there were some really important issues that were missing out of the most common topics that were covered, which I touched on before, such as the environment and gender equality um, and also integrity. But we also saw the negativity that comes on the front page um, of the Murdoch papers not so easy under Albanese, you can't count on me, those type of headlines that I think the public have probably seen enough of and it just follows the same pattern that we saw in 2016 and 2019. However, what was different this time was there wasn't as many really um, cheerleading positive stories for the coalition in 2022 on the front page compared to what we saw in 2019. The other thing is social media um, was running a hashtag, this is not journalism, which really saw some upward spikes 
uh, of traffic when there were those gotcha moments against Anthony Albanese that we touched on before with the unemployment rate, but also the attempt to do a leading question to Adam Bant when he was at the National Press Club where he responded with, I think was probably the key phrase of the election, Google it, mate. And I think that encompassed a despair that not only some of the politicians but also the public were feeling about this very shallow coverage full of these gotcha moments. So I think um, they were some of the key negatives, that it wasn't um, a particularly uh, diverse coverage and it was full of negativity in certain aspects of it um, and these very cheap sort of gotcha moments rather than trying to get to the core of what of understanding policies and dissecting the differences between the parties. Um, you used to have a, 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 a role in the media and I'm just wondering what you would do today if you were in, uh, if you were a producer or if you're an editor for one of the major um, papers. Cause I, and my, most of my criticism I think is mostly labelled at the papers. I actually find that the the TVs, broadly speaking, actually I'm not, I don't think I sort of see too much federal coverage these days. Um, it's quite ironic actually because the only time I ever seem to watch um, freeware television is when I go home to my mum. It's the only time I ever see it on television, you know, and so, oh, that's what Channel 9 News looks like. Um, but but maybe the, the state rounds in Victoria, I think those journos are pretty, you know, straight up and down in terms of their coverage. But it's the, I guess it's the print that where I find it really lacking. And I just wonder about like media editors and how they respond because clearly on social media they're getting bombarded, certainly on the left anyway. I don't know what right-wing Twitter looks like. I'm sure it's like a Nuremberg rally, but on the on the left that you know everyone is up in arms about the media coverage and really pushing back on what has been you know 20 30 years of bias reporting against uh the labor party and the there doesn't seem to be any kind of uh strategic change from from those mastheads i mean i find that like and they actually become quite introspective and start defending their own errors and shit journalism like gay gay alcorn how many how many more inches of uh, column ink can she burn constantly trying to defend her own paper and the things that they've done um it's 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 almost embarrassing really you know and i just i'm just wondering at what point do they stop and go shit we're losing readership here uh what what is our business model Uh, like i often wonder what what is the business model of the herald sun because as uh, someone pointed out on the show a couple weeks ago the only people that buy the Herald Sun is for the, for the footy and for the racing form, you know, and eventually you can get that online as well. So I just sort of, like I, I know a lot of times on this show I get stuck into the media, but also I also need to remind myself and to remind everyone else out, it's critical for a strong democracy that we have a strong independent media. But we don't have that in this country and we haven't had it for a very long time. As David Feeney says, the Murdoch Press is basically the mouthpiece for the Liberal Party. And the Fairfax is owned by Tories and written by Greens, you know. this is And this is what the Labor Party has to deal with. We're not going to get a free run. Um, so you get angry at them, but at the same time you sort of go and do, we need, you know, you know, you need to get your shit together because our democracy depends on it. Because otherwise we're going to have situations like during COVID where all these nut jobs marching up and down the street believing in all this crazy shit like, you know, the vaccine's going to, you know, make you get a better SBS reception or something. You know, this is insane. Like, I'm very despondent about the media um, and I'm up in arms and I just want to get a sense about how you would 
approach this to try and rectify some of the problems that they're facing? Yeah, well, there's some big questions, aren't they? And um, some of them are structural. Australia still has very concentrated media ownership of its mainstream legacy media. But here's the thing. Since 2019 with the Australian Electoral Study, uh, it has showed that we've crossed over where more people are getting election news online than what they're getting from um, traditional sources of media. We hadn't reached that point before. The 2022 data, I don't think, is out yet, but I imagine that trend has extended. It can, I, can, I, can I ask a clarifying question for, you, for me and for, and for the listeners? Does that include getting your news from, say, the online editions of The Guardian, The Hun, The Age or Fairfax or Murdoch? Yeah, it does. It's an all-encompassing term when you say online, but it... It, all of us or most of us these days have a mobile phone in our handbag or our pockets and that's where people are scrolling through, getting their information and they're not necessarily going to the Herald Sun or the Age masthead to get that. They might be getting the Herald Sun or the Age story from Facebook. So the platforms are playing an increasingly important role here. Um, and I think what this tells us is that really overwhelming negative coverage that came from News Corp how much does it matter anymore? Who are the readers that are getting those front page um, stories? The answer is the older readers that are probably already rusted on with their vote um, and it's preaching to the converted. Where the real change is is in the online space and the capacity there to really target messages. And you asked me what I would do. Well, I think there needs to be more innovation in the way that news is um produced and served up to audiences. We've seen the same tropes for such a long time. And I'll give you an example. Right at the start of the campaign, I don't know if you watch Insiders on uh, Sunday morning, but they interrupted their coverage to show Scott Morrison taking off in Sydney, getting in the plane, getting out at Canberra, watching the drive up, um, you know, the major boulevards, then the press pack, they're waiting for when he comes out the door after seeing the Governor-General. Those tropes have been there for 25, 30 years, as long as I can remember. There's nothing innovative in that. And in the meantime, in the online space, you've got some irreverent reporting, you've got some fun stories, you've got, you know, finally Scott Morrison's called the election, here are the top 10 issues that we should be looking at. There's lots of different ways to be able to present that first day of the campaign rather than relying on a very unimaginative way of doing it, which has been um, done for the last couple of generations. So I think... Editors need to think about what audiences want, where their audiences are when they're getting this information. And newspapers are still in the hard copy bound by time and space constraints. There's only so much room. But they don't have those time and space constraints in the online area, um, in their online iterations, and yet they still apply the media logic as though they still have the front-page time and space constraints. And I think that's where, um, you know, Facebook and people getting their news from friends and family and sharing it around or innovative sites like Junkie or even um, the New Daily or Crikey, they've thought differently about how they present news and what their audiences want and serve it up in different sizes and chunks um, without that old-fashioned media logic. And with the, uh, the the morphing into media on the, into the, on, onto the online space, 
uh, it gives you instant data in which you can analyze what are the more popular stories as well. And I, I have a funny feeling that a lot of these editors, I, I, I can't remember if this was uh, uh, a, a story that I'd he- heard on the grapevine or if it had been said to me you know, secondhand. Uh, and it was a while ago, like this might be three or four years ago, but there was a, there was a um, I think this was in the Herald Sun, there was a shit fight between the online editor and the daily editor about what was going on the front page. And the online editor was saying, no, no, this story, which was not political, but was getting all these hits and clicks, um, saying this is you know, this story trumps your what you want to put on the front page, you know, five to one, and the the one that the the main editor wanted to put on was obviously you know Daniel Andrews is a communist or something like you know some something political, and that one and the sort of the online editor put his three hands up and he said, "What's the point?" Uh, and I kind of feel for that online editor, like you've got all this data that tells you what readers want to read, yet. There seems to be, to me anyway, going off of that anecdote, albeit an anecdote, that they're ignoring that, and then they wonder why their sales are falling down. I mean, like if I think if Coles and Woolies stopped buying the Herald Sun in bulk, I think their readership would be around about fifty thousand a day. Like it would be stuff all. Um, yeah, that's right. Attention economy is really important. People only have so much time in the day, and we have. Uh, so many different ways that we can get information. We don't have to read right through a story if it's not um, giving us the information that we want. And there needs to be more attention uh, by editors to what the actual reader's looking for rather than this very paternalistic idea of we know what's best for the reader and um, the traditional gatekeeping role that um, journalists play. But there are some contradictions here too, and that is... Um, you mentioned before about the business model of traditional media. Well, they've never had so much readership in their online iterations than um, ever before. So there's vast numbers of readers that are there. It's just it's a more competitive space uh, where they can get their information from non-news sites as well, um, either through aggregation of um, information from friends and family or from traditional sites through Facebook and that's what people increasingly are doing. So um, I I think editors need to really think about how they present the news and what's considered newsworthy these days. What about in terms of uh, the training and development of journalists? Listening to the, um, the, 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 uh, I think I said to you this when you were on the show last time, during the 150 days in a row of Daniel Andrews doing press conferences, we all got to hear journalists ask their questions. And then during uh, each of the daily doorstops that both Albanese and Morrison did, we could faintly hear the questions that the journalists were asking. Um, and, uh, you know, I was sitting there listening to some of these questions that they were putting to them and I was like, the RMIT journalism school need to have a good hard look at who they're letting through and giving degrees because, you know, some of these questions were absolutely, these were bush league, you know, like just amateur stuff um i also read a report somewhere that a lot of the people that were on the traveling pack were quite young um some of the voices you know i don't sound like an old bloke now but some of the voices did sound like 15 year olds asking questions nothing wrong with that but i just wondered about who are the editors throwing into the the political rounds to do to do this work is there a diversity of skill sets that are in there that enable good reporting are these journalists getting supported with the work in order to succeed in in, in in their profession as well. I, I, I imagine the budgets are being stretched, 
you know, departments are getting shut down, people are having to be sort of, you know, um, have, have strong skill sets across a couple perhaps or, or maybe they've got to do maybe four years ago there would, there would be like 10 state round reporters, I don't know, but now, now there's only three or whatever. So like what, what's going on in, in, in the actual, um, in the trade of journalism to support the work of, uh, of, our, of our journalists? Well, the good news is coming from a journalism school at La Trobe, uh, most graduates are getting jobs and graduates are getting jobs because they have really diverse skills. They don't think about journalism just in terms of one medium. They can do audio, they can do um, broadcasting, they can do written communication and you need to have that. You need to be nimble in a modern newsroom. And I'm talking about smaller newsrooms like um, maybe not so much The Guardian now because it's grown, but Crikey or um, Junkie, th- those sorts of places where the journalist might be doing a podcast, they might then be doing a caption for a photo, they might be writing up the story and they need to be that nimble and diverse in their skill set. What you're describing out of the mainstream media with the on-the-bus type phenomenon where journalists follow the pollies around Yes, they do throw their junior reporters increasingly on that because it's such a um, a contrived space. The politicians know what they want to say. They've got their key messages and the journalists are pretty much just the scribes to, um, to capture that messaging. The false play that we see of this robustness between the journalist and the politician um, really is is just that, that by and large what we find during election campaigns is that the news media follows the agenda of the, um, of the political messaging that's coming from the candidates and from the politicians. And in most cases in Australia we see that favours the coalition with areas that are meant to be of, um, uh, that they claim they've got ownership on, such as defence and the economy. However, what was unusual in this campaign is those two areas of ownership um, threw some curveballs. Mm-hmm. So with the economy, there was an interest rate rise during the campaign and with defence, there was the um, untimely for the coalition announcement that Solomon Islands were doing a security pact with China. So their two areas of strength suddenly fell apart during that campaign, which made it more interesting. Um, but the other thing is, to your earlier point, who gets attracted into those larger newsrooms now? There's so much supply compared to demand um, that journalism jobs don't pay all that well. doesn't have the prestige that it used to have, and increasingly the workforce is becoming somewhat feminised and younger. Um the real innovation is probably happening in a lot of the smaller newsrooms and then that opens up a much wider conversation which we'll probably have on another day about how do you adequately fund public interest quality journalism. And the news media bargaining code has been one attempt to do that, to correct the power imbalances between Google and Facebook and it returned $200 million to the media sector last year The problem is a lot of that money is still going to the traditional media players of News Corp 9, Seven West Media, rather than some of it's going to the smaller startups, but not in the same quantum that it's going to the much larger organisations. And if we want to have a vibrant, pluralistic press, we need to make sure that there's a sustainable business model. Um, And the news media bargaining code's one step towards that, but it's still got some tweaks before it's fully functioning. Um, 
I probably should uh, stop getting my shit off the liver. And I also should point out that there are a bunch of journalists out there that I certainly do enjoy reading and respect as well, but I won't name them because they'll probably lose their job because I'll think they're Labor Stooges by their editors. So I'll, I'll <laughs> remain quiet. But if I like you on Twitter, then you'll know that that's who I think you're doing a great job. Um, let's talk about some of the things that you did see from the media that you actually liked that, that was innovative um, in this particular campaign. Why don't we start with your list? I reckon you were canvassing it as closely as anyone. <laughs> no, I'm going to struggle with, uh, with with this. I um, I didn't, you know, I, like I said, I, I just didn't see much coming out of uh, out of the campaign. Like, I mean, there was I, I basically started to uh, self edit who I wanted to read. Like, I, I really enjoy. Here we go. I'm going to start naming people. I really enjoy reading George Megalogenes. Uh, Catherine Murphy's pieces are always good. Uh, and a bunch of others, and I just would go looking for them and read their coverage of the election. Um, and look, I, I think that um, in terms of actually during the podcast over the six weeks leading up to the election campaign, forced myself and actually even David Feeney and uh, Emma sort of admitted this as well. I said, Shit, I really had to do research and get prepared for each episode, obviously. But I found that, you know, Twitter was very useful in just quickly grabbing what you needed. Like it was a, it was a good aggregator of content um, for like, you wanted to know um, what, you know, Morrison said at this particular um, press conference, not that hard to find really. And particularly if you followed a certain couple of journalists, you knew that we we're going to be following those particular leaders. That was really, really useful. I'm enjoying from a left-wing perspective. I'm really enjoying, um, is it uh, Squiz, uh, whoever yeah. that person or people are on um on social media, on Twitter, if you don't follow Squeeze, I don't know what the handle is, but it basically, I mean, it's overtly centre left, uh, but it's cap, it's clipping up the hypocrisy of either the conservatives uh, or elements of the media and holding them account. And I think that you know, over time they've developed a big following. Obviously, a lot of people like um, what's I can't believe I forgot the person's name, uh, PR guy. <laughs> uh, PR guy has been inter- interesting, but uh, you know, the what I think that 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 we miss on the left from a media perspective is that kind of um, like the great thing about it in the United States is there's like the Daily Show or there's Stephen Colbert or there's I mean hell even I mean just shows you how far right the Republicans have gone that you would call the Lincoln Project le- left wing they're not left wing you know they're obviously moderate Republicans but that content that was being served up on social media that was consumable that was hard hitting, that was pulling out some of the inconsistencies of, um, of our opponents on the right. Um, I thought uh, that we lack that in Australia. So there are some examples of it, like the shovel, um, Batuta Advocate, um, in, in it had its moments. Um, so there is some, you know, there are new things that are developing over the course of the last one or two cycles that I hope continue to evolve. Um, I guess where I want to, you know, this is a blatantly biased podcast. This is why we do this. Is we're not pretending to be um, anything else other than a blatantly biased centre-left, progressive, social democratic media outlet. Um, we're grateful for people like yourself who um, are, you know, you're you're from academia and to come on the show. Um, but obviously, most of the time, we have you know people from from the party or the broader union movement come on the show and talk about politics. Um, there's, you know, there's only there's myself and there's um, there's this week on Wednesday in terms of the podcast world that do a left-wing podcast. That's remarkable. 
Um, I think that we lack that on our side of politics because we're not going to get it from The Guardian. We're not going to get it from Fairfax. I don't want to talk about, we, I mean, Labor as in a good run, and we're certainly not going to get it from Murdoch. So people, I think, out there want left-wing voices, um, and I want to see more of that. So I think that's why people like Squiz and maybe um, PR Guy have been successful because people crave that content because they're sick of reading the front page of the Herald Sun. So, Steve, you'd like a more polarised media. Yeah. I don't want that. Like, I don't want that, but I've given up on that. That dream is over. We're done. That's done. Like, that's over. Um, that scene in um, Flying High 2, and don't underestimate the sequel. It's almost as good as the first one, when William Shatner has given up on the ability to get the <laughs> lunar shuttle to land on the moon, and he says, oh, shut it down. Just shut it down, and he walks out of the command centre. That's what you need to do with the media now. Just shut it down. Forget about it. It's done. If we this Nirvana... You're walking into David Feeney now. I know, this I'm, Nirvana... I hung out, I've been hanging out with him way too much over the last couple of months. <laughs> this, this Nirvana of um, independent, like, you know, the, the, the banner, the sub-banner of the age, always independent, piss off. Like, you're just not... Don't even pretend. Stop pissing in our pockets. We're not that stupid. So let's just call a spade a spade. Murdoch, we are openly and virulently supportive of the conservative side of politics. Um, the age, we are run by Tories and we're right for the Greens. So we're basically, you know, teals. And so somewhere in the in the in the centre left, people need to step up and do our own media as well. Well, I think by that account, you should be fairly pleased that given how negative the coverage was coming from News Corp uh, in its daily press, Labor still won despite that, Mm. which says something about how relevant those mastheads are. You mentioned some individual journalists and some of these journos have huge followings. Um, I think Catherine Murphy has a quarter of a million Twitter followers And this is a trend that's been going on for a while now where individual journalists and, again, a couple of seasons behind the US can have a much bigger footprint than the masthead they work for. And that gives them individual power um, to be able to um, have an impact on storytelling and of uh, delivering the news. It also gives agency to the audience because you also mentioned, you know, some of the people you go directly to on Twitter. Um, We have that capacity to shut out the gatekeeper and to go directly to the source, um, to watch the press conference live, to be able to see what uh, one of the Teals is saying about this particular policy by looking up what their tweets are and following them and getting that pretty much instantaneously in the way that radio still functions, but it's also uh, a medium that gives you information really quickly. So I think these are trends that um, have some aspects of it are positive. It means that audiences can shop around and, and get a richness of information if they want to. There was a plethora of election podcasts, and you and I were both in that list, more than 20 focused on the Australian election campaign, I found that fairly exciting because it means people want to engage with politics and in doing the podcast that we did, which was with political scientists um, and John Fain, what we were able to do is I found we weren't beholden to any interest. We weren't worried about any advertisers that we might be um, potentially offending. We weren't worried about getting pre-selection ourselves for one of the parties further down the track. 
we could say, we could call it as it was. And if people didn't like it, that's okay. They could comment on that because it featured on the conversation and get into a debate about why they thought we were wrong or not wrong. Our chief mission, just as you had a chief mission, which was to um, bring in the voices of the left, our chief mission was to make sure anything we said was evidence-based. And if it was a hunch, then we had to call it out as such. But it was a hunch based on, you know, past trends or experiences and so forth. And audiences liked it. We started it at the start of the campaign and it rocketed up the charts um, with, you know, not very much time to develop that grand swell. And I think the reason for that is that there were things missing that people wanted and they were able to find it uh, in that particular format. So I do think only use that as an example to show that I do think there are other other offerings. The problem for in my case is that's not my full-time job. It's not even my part-time job. So it's very hard to continue to sustain that, which is why our podcast was a pop-up podcast. And hopefully we'll do it again with a federal election, um, the next federal election. But again, you have to build that audience share. And this is where I get back to if we want quality public interest journalism, we need to have sustainable business models. And clearly the advertising nexus doesn't work anymore. Yeah, it's interesting actually you, you have, uh, your insights into your own podcast. Um, and uh, I, I make a joke that no one listens to this show because um, that's what I do. I do self-deprecating humour. Um, as as a defense mechanism. Um, but certainly over the course of the, we did, we would, we were doing a weekly show and we started six weeks out from election day, um, myself and David Feeney and Emma Dawson from per capita and very grateful for both of them to give over their time and commitment to that. As you would know, it's not easy to rock up once a week and, you know, give your thoughts for an hour or however long the show is. But uh, over the course of that time frame. Our audience uh, doubled on the week before in terms of our yeah. downloads, and it was remarkable. So by the end, um, like our biggest episode ever prior to the election campaign was the one with Daniel Andrews, and that was huge. That put us, that shot us to number one in the po- politics podcast rankings in Australia. Um, our final episode uh, before election day was our is our biggest episode ever because we'd sort of built this relationship, I think, with our audience over course. That's right. And that's what you're filling a need. Um, And audiences like to know you're going to be around for the longer terms. And they come to it, it becomes a habit, uh, an enjoyable habit that uh, they used to say newspapers last century were um, the morning prayers of um, communities. And now I think it's other forms of media that if you get in the habit of listening to something, uh, and the sneering coverage that you had from the mainstream media when you had Daniel Andrews on the program probably also helped. Um, draw attention to a podcast that perhaps people hadn't had the fortune of um, coming across and mainstream media just amplified um, your coverage with Daniel Andrews, which was probably not what they were trying to do in running that negative story. Absolutely. Um, you know, uh, Paul Sakal from Fairfax and uh, Rachel Baxendale from uh, Murdoch, there were two of them that, you know, um ripped into us and it was the best thing that could have happened because everyone then sort of ripped into them, which created this sort of, you know, this, I won't say it was viral, but certainly um, it, uh, you could, you could see our numbers, it was sustained over the course of, uh, you know, the two or three weeks following. Um, And uh, I'm, you know, I'm really grateful for them for for doing that. (laughs) Um, 
anything else we want to cover off before we wrap up? We're at, a, we're at our hour, Andrea. We've, um, I didn't even look at my questions. I was just happy to have a yak with you and touch base with uh, your thoughts on the election. And I really am grateful for uh, you coming on. But is there anything else you want to sort of... Uh... Well, I hope I've given you something new, given it's been a couple of months since the election passed. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see uh, what's worked and how it plays out in future campaigns. And the field campaigning really showed its strength, as we touched on with the independents, and especially also in rural and regional areas, which we haven't talked about so much. So with rural and regional areas, you look at the three-horse race that was in Damien Drum's seat, uh, the retiring national, and you had uh, Rob um, Priestley, who managed to, uh, he, he didn't win that, but he managed to make it a really tight contest as an independent. And the national that ran, Rob Mitchell, had a 25% swing against him in a national heartland. And I think this is really important because it shows what can be achieved by um, people that are passionate about politics. They bring volunteers with them. They are starting to understand the importance of field campaigning. They're using social media at a low-cost option to be able to reach out to people. But most importantly, it's putting communities first. It's showing that um, candidates or parties that have taken for granted the seats that they have with these huge margins can't afford to do that anymore, that people want to be represented and they want someone who cares about their community and I think we're going to see more of that, in, well, at least I hope so, in politics going forward um, because it makes for more diverse debates and keeps the major parties which are in charge of the policy agenda, it keeps them on their toes to make sure that we do canvas all aspects of policy rather than just um, putting something through that's half-hearted. It's an interesting point you've made there. We had Josh Burns on the podcast a couple of weeks ago when, uh, you know, Josh was in a knife fight to hold on to his seat. Um, uh, it, I think in the end uh, it was his seat that tipped the government into 76 that they needed to form government. Uh, and he said on the podcast, you know, you cannot take any seat for granted now. There is no such thing as a, as a safe seat. Um, and I know that there are still MPs out there at a state and a federal level who think, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, no, but, you know, I, I, I don't, don't take my election for granted, but deep down they know it's, they think it's a safe seat. And I think that would be that would be unfortunate for them to think that because I think it is true. I think that the, the days of, um, you know, having a red ribbon or a blue ribbon uh, seat for life are done and I think that one of the other key takeaways from this most recent campaign is that when you are elected into office, you're now given the resources to get yourself re-elected. I know we have some stupid rules in Victoria about what you can and can't do in terms of that. It's something we need to fix. Um, it's ridiculous. You can't campaign for your own re-election. But, um, you know, at a federal level, certainly, uh, you've got the resources to get yourself re-elected. If you don't get yourself re-elected, it's, it's on you. And if you are not organising from day one, and I mean fair income organising, not, you know, tokenistic AstroTurf bullshit, but actually going out there into the constituency, identifying leadership and folks that share your values and then organising them to grow the volunteer capacity within your constituency, uh, to get closer to your constituency, uh, for them to have a greater say in democracy, but also hopefully if you're a Labor candidate or a Labor MP, get returned back into government 
on the back of the hard work that you've done and the organising you've done with your volunteers, um, then you're kidding yourself. And now I think that's what that would be the biggest. If I was an MP, that would be the, if I was in a marginal tight marginal seat, or if I was in the safe, safe, safe Labor seat. Um, the very first thing I'd be doing would be hiring a field organiser and setting about developing a field strategy from day one to build up volunteer capacity to make sure that I, not just in the final eight weeks of the campaign, but across the life of the campaign, are having direct conversations one-on-ones with voters on the doors on their phones to make sure that they know that I have their interests and that if they want to see change in government or change in in policy or, 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 or even affect change in their local area, that they can do that through 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 representative democracy yeah i agree with that and i also think we shouldn't underestimate how inspiring that is for others that are watching around them especially in the case of the teals younger women that see these women achieve success beyond what was predicted i think that's inspiring a whole next generation of um, potential political candidates Um, and hopefully that's how we're going to move towards you know something that i'm passionate about is gender equality in the parliament given that um women make up over 50% of the population, it would be nice to see that reflected in the parliament. And I think um, this is a way forward for that, uh, being able to see what you want to be and, and seeing the positive example. Here, here. And on that, on that positive note, why don't we wrap it up there? Andrea Carson, thank you so much for coming on uh, the podcast today. Great to see you again. Um, and uh, uh, anything you want to plug? Not really. Oh, okay. No books? Um, I do have a book coming out. It's not till November, though. Okay. Well, look, look out for it when it does come out. Andrea, thanks very much for coming on the show, and uh, we uh, look forward to having you back on uh, in the near future. Thank you, Stephen. Pleasure to be on the show. Hey there. Thanks for listening to Social Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And to get all the latest updates on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday. Socially Democratic was brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn lawyers have spent more than a century paving the hard path to justice for everyday Australians. They've helped over 500,000 Australians turn their situation around and they know how the system works. Their experience and skills means you'll get the best results possible. Find out more on their website, morrisblackburn.com.au. Morris Blackburn, experience you can count on.